Oh, friends, if you um, want to grab your Bible open again, that'll be great. Just give me a moment to take a, a breath. Um, Philemon is where we want to open to. So Philemon, if you, if you weren't here last week, we almost gave a lesson on how to find Philemon. But if you got to Hebrews, it's a bit too far, and it's just after Titus. So if that helps, otherwise you just do the flick through. But use your table of contents. That's a good idea, isn't it? So it's in the New Testament. That's a start anyway. And uh, welcome to, if you're watching from home, um, uh, at least you'll get this video on Tuesday, so welcome. If you do miss one of these sermons, you can catch them up on, uh, on our YouTube channel, so please do that. The other thing you'll find as you came in the door was um, an outline, it was in your bulletin. You might want to get that out. Write a few notes down, we're going to try to have a, a, a Q&A at the end, so if you've got a question or a, a, a comment a word of encouragement, anything like that, then, um, yeah, we'll have that towards the end. Okay. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this little letter tucked away in the corner of the, our New Testaments. We thank you for the story. We thank you for Philemon and Epaphras. We thank you that they were the people that... Um, we're serious about the gospel and they brought the gospel to this little church in Colossae. And we thank you, Lord, for changed lives. We read about Onesimus, uh, his life being changed from a runaway slave to a, uh, to a follower of you. And so, Lord, we pray as we open your word today, help us to concentrate, help us to um, uh, get lots out of this and know what to do with it as we live our lives for you, Lord Jesus. Amen. So you might remember Paul's prayer for Philemon. This was last week. I'm gonna, if you weren't here last week, there's a bit of catching up to do. Don't get frustrated with that. Hang in there. Um, if you haven't caught up on our YouTube channel, then you will, you will be able to catch up. Might take a bit of work at the start. But with this, this particular verse was really important. It was verse 6. I pray, this was Paul's prayer for Philemon. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective. Now, that's verse 6, a translation of verse 6. So the question here is, how will his Philemon's participation in the faith be effective in the difficult situation that Philemon finds himself in? How? That's a big question. How will it be effective? Now, Philemon's track record was really good. Have a look at verse 7 with me. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. So Philemon's words and actions, and I'm sure his prayers, had demonstrated already the effectiveness of his faith. He cared about those under his care. He really did. He, he, he cared especially for their faith in Jesus and their love for each other. Paul had little doubt that Philemon's fellowship in the faith would become effective in this difficult scenario. But how does this happen? How does this happen? How does the fellowship of believers become effective, particularly in difficult church situations? When a church is going through a difficult situation, how does the fellowship of believers become effective? Now, I guess one thing we're saying here is that if it were not for the fellowship of believers, that participation in the faith, if it were not for that, well, things would be very different indeed. 
It was important for the church at Colossae to know the power of their fellowship for difficult situations. And the situation here was difficult. Let me give you a bit of a recap. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in a prison cell in Rome, has brought two men to faith in Jesus. Philemon, the letter that this, this, the man that this letter is addressed to, and later Onesimus. Onesimus was Philemon's runaway slave. All wanting to serve Jesus and love each other. Now, how was the fellowship of believers to be effective amongst them in this difficult church situation? Because now, in Colossae, Philemon, his home, the church meets, and two letters have appeared with a guy called Tychicus. Tychicus was really just a friend of Paul's and he delivered the letters and he read them out to the church. But with those two letters came, in Philemon's lounge room, in amongst the church, Onesimus, the runaway slave. A difficult situation. How will Philemon and Onesimus, how would their fellowship of the faith be proved effective? As we get into the letter, we need to keep in mind two things. We, need to, we should imagine it being read uh, aloud before all the believers meeting in Philemon's house. So Tychicus has arrived. There's a bit of a stir in the city. Uh, and they go to the church. Tychicus reads aloud Colossians first. And then he reads aloud Philemon. So we've got to imagine that. Use our sense of imaginations in a room packed probably uh, about a third of the size of this one, I reckon. That's the first thing. But the second thing, Philemon is being addressed, this, this letter here is being addressed personally in verses 8 to 21. The you in verses 8 to 21 is singular. So, he's, so this, the, the whole church is hearing this letter that's addressed to Philemon, or at least verses 8 to 21. What we know already then is that relationships are involved and relationships make difficult situations, don't they? That's how it tends to work. Uh, relationships are involved and that faith in Jesus affects relationships. So today we're going to spend some time looking at these relationships and hopefully we'll see effective fellowship in the faith at work. So if you see your outline, I've got, we're going to spend oh, a little bit of time about even on both, but you can see those different relationships and I'll have a few things up on the screen as well. Here's the first relationship, Paul's relationship with Philemon. We see this from a couple of perspectives, you can see there on the screen, um, the, as an apostle and as a Christian brother. So, as an apostle, look at verse 8. Paul writes, therefore. When we see a therefore, we need to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? Uh, Paul's prayer in verse 6 and his confidence in, verse, in Philemon in verse 7 led him to draw a conclusion to say, therefore, that as an apostle he could order him to do what he ought to do. See those words? Paul's generally not backward in coming forward, is he? Paul clearly has expectations of Philemon, although at this point we're not entirely sure what, what he ought to do actually is. We don't really know yet. We have to wait and see. So, as an apostle. But Paul's relationship with Philemon is also seen from another perspective as a Christian brother. So, although Paul, as an apostle, could well issue a command. He could, as an apostle, go, from on high, you do what I say. Right? This is how you do it, do what I say. He could do that. But he doesn't, does he? 
This occasion didn't need a, a heavy hand, nor, nor even a rebuke. Remember, Philemon's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong. He's as surprised as anyone to see Onesimus in his lounge room. Paul instead made an appeal on the basis of love. Now, that, that, this is not to say, however, that commands have no place in the fellowship of believers, but it just wasn't the right thing here. There is, of course, something much better than a command, and that is, you can see in the verse there, as an appeal or an encouragement for love's sake, on the basis of love. That's so much better than a command, isn't it? Again, no heavy hand. Paul is also, he, he's, he's, he appeals as an old man in chains. I don't know if you get that sort of picture, but it's old man advice. You know, listen to old men, they've got wisdom. Here's an example. Old man advice. There, there are a number of us in, um, in leadership positions uh, here at 10 a.m. Church uh, today, uh, some in some form of ministry, which of course is fantastic, it's great. But we ought to take special note here, I think. Uh, all of us need to see that there may be a time, yeah, there may be a time for a strong word. There may be that sort of time. A uh, word from authority. But Paul's preferred way in difficult situations in churches is on the basis of love. Okay, let's have another look at another relationship on show in these verses. It's point two on our outline. So Paul's relationship to Onesimus, sort of verses 10 to 13. We can see Paul's relationship with Onesimus from four perspectives. Each of these give us some clues about how Philemon was to respond to Onesimus. So first of all, his son. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. Remember when you see the you there, it's to Philemon. That you is singular. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus who became my son while I was in chains. Up until this point, Onesimus, well, you know, Onesimus, is the, it's a bit awkward, isn't it? He's the elephant in the room. What's he doing here? I can't believe he's here. Do you remember him? Man, he was the guy who stole from Philemon and he ran off. He, that guy, what's he? It's that sort of thing. Now, and there would have been no doubt some tension, I think, when, when Tychicus um, arrives and Onesimus is with him. And you notice, too, this is the first time Onesimus' name gets mentioned in the letter to Philemon, although he does get a mention at the end of Colossians. But this is the first hint that this second letter has something to do with Onesimus. In any case, what Paul wanted to make clear to all was that Onesimus was now, like them, a follower of Jesus. And indeed, that Paul had been the one who brought him to faith, just like Philemon, one of the church leaders a key church planter in the church of Colossae. And just like Epaphras, remember Epaphras was the guy who first brought the gospel to Colossae. Onesimus is just like them. He too is a follower of the Lord Jesus. And Paul had been instrumental in him receiving new life, hence the phrase, become my son. Onesimus had left Colossae a criminal and returned a changed man. Another aspect of Paul and Onesimus' relationship is that useful. Look at verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to me and to you. Onesimus, actually the name means useful. Wouldn't that be frustrating when he was not so good, such a good slave? But it means useful. 
but now he is useful. Not sure, we're not really sure how he was useless. Uh, maybe he was just lazy. I don't know. Maybe he was um, uh, dishonest, irresponsible. Maybe he turned up to work every day late. I don't know. You know, bludged around. Who knows? But he wasn't a very good slave. And we, but we should have no doubt too that Philemon would have been, a, as a Christian man, would have been a good boss, a good master, and treated him well. Um, and, and it's actually quite possible that when Onesimus ran away, uh, Philemon might have breathed a sigh of relief. Thank goodness that dud's gone. Isn't that fantastic? Um, it might have been, who knows? But now he is useful, and he's useful, verse 11, to both Paul and Philemon. All right. Well, let's take a little break for a moment, a little bit of a pause, and you can see over the page on your outline if you're following that. Let's, let's address this slightly difficult question of biblical slavery. It's, it's a bit like, I'm speaking of elephants in the rooms, it's, it's a bit like that, isn't it, really? Uh, a possibly embarrassing uh, notion of biblical slavery, and we'll look at it from our perspective in the 21st century. So we're going to turn our attention to Colossians 3, uh, verse 22, and uh, to 22 to 4, verse 1. So if you've got your Bible there, just flick back to Colossians 3. This is part of our first reading that Adrian read for us. And remember, as we read part of Colossians, remember that this too was a letter being read and Philemon and Onesimus were very likely to be sharing a spot in the lounge room. Okay, so again, got to use your imagination. Uh, this letter was being read by Tychicus and there was Philemon and there was the runaway slave Onesimus. Okay, let me read from Colossians 3, verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So the, the treatment of the topic of slavery in the Bible has been a cause of, well, a bit of embarrassment, a bit of awkwardness, I think, over the years uh, for Christians and not to mention an easy target for the Bible is not culturally relevant campaigners. It seems that what we see now as morally unacceptable, the Bible writers accepted. Therefore, culturally, the Bible is out of touch, so we should not listen to it in regards to sexuality, in regards to marriage and other hot topics, as the argument goes. Now, there, there is a fair bit to say, and we're not going to be able to say it all, but the idea here is to, for me to make a few comments that hopefully are helpful and then that'll help you to think more, uh, a bit more about the topic. I want, to, I want to say five things, and then we're going to look at Colossians 3. That seems like a lot, but it's not, trust me. First, to judge uh, the Scriptures by the standard and values of our culture, the understandings of our historical moment, is, I think, actually quite arrogant, um, as if we've all got it right, got it all right. It's, a, it's also a poor argument. It means you refuse to allow these scriptures 
to critique your times and culture, except on your own terms. So Christians cannot take such a low view of the Bible. Second, the subject of slavery is actually a a very good test case for Bible-believing Christians today. Will we humbly listen to God's word with the confident expectation that it is thoroughly good? If we do believe in the Bible's goodness and completeness, if we do believe that, then we should know that whenever we find it hard to see God's word as good, it'll either be because we've misunderstood it or because of a mistaken moral framework that we carry around with us. Okay, third, the case of slavery is difficult, but as we've seen a moment from Colossians 3, we need to listen carefully to what the Bible actually does say rather than imagining what God might be saying. Part of the difficulty here is that nowhere in the Bible is slavery endorsed, but neither is it necessarily condemned. Okay, four. Unfortunately, when it comes to this issue, we bring baggage. And so it's hard not to do that, but we're going to try really hard. Uh, Baggage of images of, um, of 19th century slavery in the US, for example, or even in the 20th century. And the great stories of the emancipation of slaves, the William Wilberforce and John Newton and that's, that's those people. That was race, race-based slavery. This isn't. Uh, it was in every aspect appalling and cruel race-based slavery. What's mentioned in Colossians 3 isn't what happened in the 19th century, slavery, 19th century US. Slavery in Rome and elsewhere in, in places such as Colossae was not race-based Uh, Slaves had certain rights in Roman law and many were ex-soldiers. Slaves could also gain their freedom. In some cases, slaves could be expected to be set free after seven years. And under Roman law, he or she could be expected to be freed at least by the age of 30. However, you didn't really want to be a slave. (laughs) It wasn't a desirable condition. You'd rather be free. Of course you'd rather be free. But at this point, we need to recognise the historical context of the Bible and not read into it for another era. Okay, now five, a fifth little thing I want to say, we're left with acknowledging that the practices in the first century Roman times were not really challenged much at all. That's what we're left with. So in all, we need to ask, having received Jesus Christ as Lord, what is the relationship between slave and master? That's the context we're looking at. What difference does Jesus make in the relationship between slave and master? And that'll help us to understand what difference does the relation what difference does Jesus make in our relationships? Whether that's oh, it could be employer employee, but not necessarily. It could just be the person sitting next to your church. Okay, let's um let's turn our attention to Colossians three then and and uh, following. Paul addresses slaves first. And there's no doubt Onesimus was not the only slave in the room. Because of their faith in Jesus and their new life in him, slaves have a new obedience. You can see this in verses uh, 22. Obedience with sincerity of heart. You can see reverence for the Lord. For the master that matters is not the earthly master, but our heavenly master, our Lord. That's the context of their obedience now as Christians. But it's not that our allegiance to Christ makes our earthly allegiances uh, obsolete, that they don't matter. 
That's not, it's not what's being said here. Clearly, we have earthly obligations and so we work hard whether we're being watched or not. This new obedience is lived out in a new outlook in life. Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord, not for, human, for the, a human master. That's a good word for us, isn't it? If you're someone who's employed, if you work, or whether you work for yourself, if you're someone who works at home, if you're a mum working at home or, a, or mum doing mum things at home, working at home, you know what I mean? Work at it for the Lord. Slaves then, by Christ, are liberated. To li- it's a freedom to live this way. Uh, as slaves, they have a limited freedom, but as believers in Jesus, everything is working for him, serving him. Slaves, as with all Christians, have a new reward. Verse 24, it's an inheritance. Something slaves would not receive as men and women. They got nothing. When they went through, they, they, they finished being a slave. They didn't receive a nice superannuation or anything like that. <laughs> they got nothing. But what they receive as Christians, they receive in full. In fact, slaves were rarely rewarded for their work. What they did was rewardless in every way. Can a slave be redeemed from a life of rewardless effort? Faith in Christ changes that, even for a slave. Now, what was this reward? We've got your Bible there. Flick back to 1 verse 5. 1 verse 5, this inheritance. What's this reward? Of course, it's heaven. The faith, that, uh, faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message, the word of truth and the gospel. There, there is a good lesson here for us who live too often for earthly, temporary rewards. Is that you, I wonder? Living for things that are temporary. Don't do that. We should learn from what we said here that these slaves had no earthly reward. Nothing. Zip, nothing. If they can live for Jesus with no earthly reward coming their way, we can too. For we share the greatest reward and inheritance by God's grace. And that surely is motivation to live well for Jesus. For as the second half of verse 24 in chapter 3 says, Is the Lord Christ we're serving? So Christians have a new master. It's a last little point there. Um, finally, in verse 25, in regards to slaves and masters, there is accountability and justice for any wrongdoing. God cares about how we work, whether we're a slave or not. Uh, Honesty is important. Uh, Love is important. So this must transform the quality of your serving, Paul writes to the slaves. Being united to Christ, you see, changes everything. It changes how we work. Serving the Lord Christ deepens. It does not lessen our obligations to those we serve in this world. Okay, well, what about masters? So as you can see in your Bible there, you've got, I don't know how many verses, you've got three, four verses on slaves why do masters get away with it so easily well i don't think they do let's look at these these words here in verse one chapter four masters provide your slaves with with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven don't be put off by the shortness of the verse there's a, it's, it's a powerful punch is, uh, is directed here at, at the masters of slaves and i'm sure too philemon at this point was listening with all ears So masters were not to use their power for their own means. They must be fair and just. Uh, 3 verse 25 is relevant for them as well. God will judge their wrongdoing. So although this is directed to masters, yes, 
there is a word here for those of us who are employers and we have people under us. Uh, God will judge our wrongdoing. We're not to use our own power for our own means. Uh, power is a source of great sinfulness in not only in the workplace but also in the church. It's one of the reasons why we're careful about safe ministry because most abuse is all about power and a misuse of power. Well, uh, what we see here is that earthly power, all earthly power, is under a heavenly power, and that's, that's, that's our Father in heaven. God brings it under his rule. The powerful, in the earthly sense, just like slaves, are serving the Lord Christ. The challenge then to all of us uh, is to see that all of life's obligations and relationships, even the difficult ones, we're going to see it in the light of Christ's reconciliation of all, all things. It's in verse 24. It's a key sentence. It is in the Lord Christ you are serving. Okay. So, does that answer all our questions about slavery? Eh, maybe. Maybe not. Depends how many questions you've got, I guess. Um, if you want to ask another one at the end when we've got our Q&A, you can do that. Um, I'll do my best. Uh, but hopefully it's useful in terms of thinking about the relationships and hopefully it's useful in terms of uh, working out how effective fellowship in the faith um, works itself out, the power of Christian fellowship. Let's now go back to, we're only going to spend a couple of minutes on this, let's go back to Paul's, rela- well, those last two relationships, it's Paul's relationship to uh, Onesimus. So, where we got up to, we've talked about his son, we've talked about useful. In verse 12, Onesimus is described by Paul as his very heart. Now let's just... <laughs> I know we're just getting started again, but let's just pause for a minute. I love the fact that here are two men, two Christian brothers, and they ref- well, Paul refers to his Christian brother, who's probably a bit younger than him, to be honest. Onesimus was probably younger than Paul. And this is towards the end of Paul's life as well. But still, they were good friends. They were good mates. And how does he describe his good mate, his good Christian brother? His very heart. I don't know, can you do that with some of you? If you're a Christian person, you're a Christian mate, can you describe your friends that way? I hope so. Here's true friendship, true Christian friendship, on example here. He's my very heart. Isn't that good? Okay. Well, it's also fellowship, Christian fellowship at work, isn't it? An imprisoned former Jew and a Gentile ex-slave becoming good friends. How about that? What a story. (laughs) Something much bigger than these, much bigger is going on here. So his heart, but Paul's also described Onesimus as his servant. Not like a slave, but someone who serves him. Uh, verse 13, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. So of course, Paul would rather have Onesimus with him. He's a good partner in the gospel. You know, no one likes to say goodbye to good friends who work together in ministry. He'd much rather have him with him. But it's better than Onesimus goes back for the sake of the gospel, goes back to Philemon. Now, we now move on quickly to the third relationship we find in Philemon. That's Paul, uh, Philemon and Onesimus. So verse 14, But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favour you do will be spontaneous and not forced. So Paul did not want Philemon's hand to be forced. Remember verse 8? What what I, I could go from on high as an apostle... Philemon needed to make the right decision from his heart. Now, we're still not exactly sure, are we, 
are we? Um, what Philemon was to do with Onesimus. We haven't actually been told yet. We'll get there, promise. But in any case, the favour he would do has to come from him. Uh, now, a better translation, I think, than favour is a good deed or a, or a good thing. It reminds us of Paul's prayer in Colossians 1 verse 10. Look at that. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So good work and favour is actually the same word in the Greek. Same thing. So the point is that this good work, whatever it must, whatever it is, must come from Philemon's heart. His believing heart. Not, a, not from a heavy hand, not from a Paul saying, I'm an apostle, do what I say, but uh, from his heart. And that way, fellowship of the faith will become effective. The final relationship we see in this section is uh, Paul, Philemon, Onesimus and the Lord. So before Paul finally tells Paul Philemon uh, what he actually wants him to do and put him and possibly us out of our misery, uh, <laughs> he's got one more thing to say. And it's all about God's purposes. Even though Onesimus did the wrong thing, he ran away and was a fairly ordinary slave, it might well be that he was taken from Philemon so he could, could, he could have him back forever as a brother in Christ. See, God's working all through this situation. For if he didn't run away, he wouldn't have come back, come into contact with Paul and the gospel. So verse 15, Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. I do love that language. Isn't that good? Beautiful. Okay, so we're starting to get a clearer picture, aren't we? A bit of a clearer picture, I hope, of what effective fellowship looks like. What the power of this participation in the faith that we share. Effective fellowship. What does it look like? So, what exactly did Paul hope Philemon would do? Well, I'm going to find out next week. I'm going to pray for us. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we do thank you for your word today. We thank you for this great story, but true story of, um, of fellowship in the faith. And Lord, we pray as your church here in Robertson, we pray that uh, our faith that we share, that we participate in, would be effective. We pray that when difficult times come along in church, that we're ready, that we're ready because of your word to us today. We don't look forward to that, but in some ways we do because we can trust in you and trust in your word. We're going to be obedient to you. Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Thank you that you are the God who saves. In Jesus' name, amen.